Let's take a little time to reveal The prehistoric stories that the earth once concealed Mix them all together on this ancient land It's time to spread some paleo Hello, welcome to the latest edition of the Paleo Jam podcast. Uh, my name is Michael Mills. I am your host, and uh, we're doing we're doing our first uh, episode ever via Zoom because I'm here in Armadale on Anawan Country, but I'm speaking with Eleanor Badach, who's in Mount Barker in Western Australia, which is I think Noongar Country. Specifically. Yeah, cool. Thank you for that. So, hello, Eleanor, and welcome to Paleo Jam. Hello, Michael. Great to uh, be here. Pleasure to have you here. So, um, now your bio says that you're a disability rights activist, a journalist, and a and a and a science student, and we'll we'll talk about all of that in a moment, but. Um, like all young people, when you were a young people, mm-hmm. and probably still young anyway. Um, but you, you, the, the the passion to study paleontology, like, was that a thing that was for you as a kid? You wanted to be a paleontologist. Yes. So I see I've read my work bio. Very good. Uh, yes, <laughs> paleontology. You. I. I've always been interested in and drawn to paleontology in particular among all the sciences and all the geosciences. Yes, it did start when I was a child. Um, I suppose I would be one of those children that was obsessed with fossils and playing um, silly games with my sister about Guessing animals, vegetables, minerals, etc. It's just it wasn't dinosaurs for me what? often. So you weren't the dinosaur kid. I wasn't the dinosaur kid. I do very much like dinosaurs. I'm very interested in dinosaurs, especially today now that we know birds are dinosaurs. That's something that really excites me. But no, as a kid, it was actually prehistoric whales and dolphins that were my thing. I've always had a thing for what lived in the ocean and what lived in the ocean a really long time ago. Cool, because you you also, I was reading that you you have like a strong interest in marine biology. Yes. Yes, that's right. That's where the things that live in the ocean come into it. So I always loved paleontology that I was really fond of the marine biology side of it. So the evolution of animals and the very small quantity of not animals that live in the ocean, but also the ocean processes, what makes it an environment that things can live in. I mean, just think about it. All the pressure and the temperature and the tides and the energy, how does anything actually live in that it's pretty cool when you think about it yeah anyway, it is. i um i started 
My interest started in the evolution of whales and dolphins when I was about nine years old, and I became obsessed with wanting to learn everything about how they went from a large land predator that looked like a giant grey wolf or something, and ended up being whales and dolphins as we know them today. And I had this thing when I was a kid about one day finding the missing link between the two forms. Anyway, paleontology was the thing I wanted to do that wasn't really very easy for me to do it with a disability. I have a physical disability. I live in a regional area. There weren't a lot of options. So instead, I actually did my degree in marine biology. So it was actually like the next best thing to learning everything about the evolution of life in the ocean. Yeah. So, so, and, and we'll, we'll, I want to talk about that a, a bit in terms of the, the, the challenges. Um, um, that the, having to deal with with challenges and and accessibility and barriers because it's really hard if you're not having to confront or or, or deal with those things mm. to, to to understand. And I, I remember um, when my mother was with us, I was struck when she needed to travel by a wheelchair I suddenly became aware because it became a personal thing the challenges I would I would go to pick her up to 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 take her to the park and the challenges of just navigating a footpath or of taking her to a restaurant on Mother's Day that didn't have a lift and we had to get her up the stairs and and it's only Mm. And it struck me just at a personal level to to what a privilege it is that I have that I I don't have to deal with that. So, because paleontology often involves field work and getting to field. It does. So so, and and I want to ask you about because there's a um one of the articles you wrote about there was a report that came out about um people working in screen. The, the the screen industry movie industry and mm-hmm. one of the things that you've you've written in with your journalist hat on is is i guess the 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 challenges and the fear that people have of of being a burden mm. it, it it talks about it in that article that one one of the people that you spoke to had this fear that are oh, i'm i'm i have this issue now that that means i'm in a, a the wheelchair, so I, I, and that can be such a barrier yes. to people. Yes. So, so how how have you dealt with some of these things along the way? Yes, well, my disability is genetic, so I was born with it, and that means that I have, of course, always grown up with a large degree of limited ability. Uh, physically. Now, it is a bit degenerative, so I have lost things over my life, things that I could do <clears throat> more easily as a child that I then couldn't do as a teenager. Some of it has actually come back in adulthood, which is fantastic, 
and some stuff is gone forever. Now, it's not that being born with disability is easier than acquiring it, but rather than getting shocked for people that have an injury or an illness, like, say, a stroke, older in their life, that they end up with acquired disability, is they've never had to think about living their life from that perspective. And it also means that there's trauma around becoming used to an entirely new way of being, physically, sometimes, emotionally and psychologically. So one of the common things with people with disabilities, and particularly people who end up disabled after an event of some kind, is they feel like a burden. Because they're not used to having to exist in this state, and they're not used to how that will impact their loved ones. So I think probably every person with a disability has their moments of feeling like they're a burden. But the easier part was that when it's what you've always been, you've got nothing to compare it to. It's just the way you've always been. And if you have a network that doesn't make you feel like you're in the way of anything, then it's easy to not come to that conclusion that you're a burden. So that's kind of how it worked out for me. It's my network, my family, my friends, that's pretty good. They don't make anything feel like I'm the problem, that I'm in the way. And most importantly, they didn't when I was young. But it's in childhood, especially, when you can get those kind of misunderstandings about your role in society or how you exist in your family. So that was the main thing. So I just never came to that sort of conclusion of being a complication of being a burden to those people around me. That is a bit different in the workplace or in academia. Uh, those people, they aren't necessarily that disability aware. And sometimes I did turning up with all my physical needs in my pretty awesome power wheelchair that's still a power wheelchair. And I'd be saying, mm, hey, this unit, this subject that you've come up with and designed as your masterpieces, actually really inaccessible and a bit ableist and you need to change it because I need to do this for my degree. And that's when there can be a bit of an adjustment reaction. But then the people who are used to academia and teaching it in one way go like, well, I don't know how to change it and I don't know that I want to. Which is interesting, isn't it? And and and, and I think what's mm. fascinating in in, in well, one of the many fascinating insights you've just given is that difference between um, being in a place where you are, where this is this this is this is how it began. This is this has been your world. Mm-hmm. So that gives you a unique perspective, the support that you you have from everyone around you because they get it um, in comparison with somebody that when you're talking about an event that creates the, the, the disability. But then what you're doing in going into places like academia that in 
some places are not equipped and not and, mm. and I think because it, it they they don't get it they 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 don't have it as as it's not part of their lived experience it's almost in a sense like that thing where you know and for me it's a tiny scale but 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 you know just realizing the, the issues with with trying to take mum to the park in a wheelchair and it's like oh mm. there's a car parked across their driveway I now have to take mum onto the road and it's like the person in the car wouldn't have thought so it's all that sort yeah. of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Not thinking is probably the main source of ableism. The word is ableism. And the problem with not thinking is it's not even done maliciously. It's just there's not really any consideration on a broad scale that a disabled person is probably the one to be an alienologist. It's still a battle that we it with disabilities have on a daily basis, the that all to be able to access buildings or streetscapes, the that all to be able to get jobs or get degrees. It's like with every minority, the language is always based around inclusion, but putting it into practice is a different thing, and it's sort of like disabilities. I feel like. Uh, almost the last one on the list that actually probably stick out our heads around how to get people like me into a workplace, a building, a university, a discipline. You know, it starts out with the push to have women in the workforce and women to get degrees, and that was a struggle decades ago, and now there's still problems of women in paleontology and women in science that it improves over time. But in my lifetime, I've sort of noticed that attitude towards disability only started to shift as an adult. So really, we're at the very early stages, socially, of actually thinking about how to include literally everyone in everything. Hmm. It's it's interesting. All right. What I want to talk about now, then, I, I want to yes. talk about your paleontology stuff. Um, one of the my favourite things that that in in stalking you on social media, so I, I knew what I could <laughs> ask about was was the trip to Lightning Ridge and mm. the 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 you you saying to your family, yeah, I want to travel thousands of kilometres to Lightning Ridge, which is not far from where I am here in New South Wales, um, and there's some sure. paleontology stuff that I want to do. I mean, what was their reaction and how did you, how did you, and quite groundbreaking in, in what you did, what what was the process? Okay, so <laughs> it was interesting. First of all, my, my mum is an archaeologist by training and she kind of always wishes she'd actually done paleontology when she was at uni. So she's a little bit rock nerd herself and she was actually reading about the yearly Lightning Ridge uh, expeditions mm -hmm. in the Australian Geographic when she mentioned it and showed it to me. 
and basically there wouldn't be great if we could go there. And we've been talking about writing a script on the East for a while, um, to go see some stuff in, yeah, New South Wales and Victoria. We want to go look at some of the heritage gardens that the Diggers Club has, as well as go into plants and nature and stuff. And the thing is, the reason it was such a big deal to plan is I can't really get on a plane and fly. I never actually need on a plane. Anything I do to travel, I have to be able to drive to. And obviously driving from Western Australia to New South Wales is quite an undertaking. It's a long way to go. So, yeah, it was sort of originally Nam's idea that I took her seriously and said, oh, yes, let's do that. That's not a great thing to do. It's open to the public. It's for citizen science. It will be fantastic. Now we just need to get a vehicle. Uh, so, yeah, getting the vehicle, that was interesting. Obviously, I have a wheelchair accessible car. It's a van, but you can't live in it. And to get over from Western Australia to New South, um, you have to live in the vehicle. Because it's definitely a week across Australia to get there. So that was the first hurdle, was finding a caravan that we could buy that wasn't too expensive. And then my mad inventor friend and my sister uh, designed a hoist so that I could get in and out of this 1986 Navster caravan so that I could drive over there and put my mum, my sister, my friend, and we went over to Nightly Ridge in New South Wales, and the trip was really interesting and really, really cool. I mean, the driving part, I actually had the flu, so I didn't notice most of it. It kind went off the haze. But once we got to Nightly Ridge, that's one thing that got really, really awesome. But Nightly Ridge is a desert itself. Um, so accessing that was its own kind of challenge. But the really interesting thing about it was the sight, its ruggedness and its remoteness. It actually wasn't that inaccessible. It was so friendly. Uh, everyone there was so welcoming. It was a really interesting experience. And yeah, I actually got to look at fossils. That was my first time going out in the field and doing proper fossil finding and fossil examining. And that can be, I, I remember the first time that I went to a, to a, um, a fossil site on Emu Bay in Kango uh, Island where there mm-hmm. are half a billion year old um, trilobites and uh, anomalocaris eyes and stuff that some of the team at University of New England work on. And that first time that you see a fossil or you crack open a fossil or however you you get access to seeing the yeah. fossil is a remarkable thing because you might be the first set of eyes that's looking at that thing that has looked at it since it was alive half a billion years ago or 
or the age of the 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 stuff in Lightning Ridge. So when yeah. you so, so you get there and you find that you're pretty good at identifying seashells. And and what I really yes. love about the story uh, in in, in lot there are lots of things to love about this story is that firstly it's the you found out about this thing at Lightning Ridge and you've decided well we have to find a way to get there and so you've created yeah. the way to get there which is something that will help other people in terms of the, the things that you've done to get there but it's in getting there you find there's a particular skill set that you have that is really quite useful as a paleontologist and it ah. and it's mm -hmm. i guess it's that that focus on ability isn't it yeah yeah and, definitely um and and so in in chatting with with people like dr phil bell and marissa betts and and that from the university of new england um mm -hmm. you're you're now studying paleontology i am yes yes and how cool is that from the kid that wanted to do that that was in love with 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 prehistoric whales and dolphins <laughs> yep um you know like challenging all of these barriers and possibilities and stuff whereas now you're you're actually doing paleontology at university and and so you're doing it because they do it online yes um so so what's your what's what's your area of expertise what are you studying tell us tell us some cool stuff right cool stuff well i am halfway to living my original childhood dream as much as i am a marine paleontologist well i am on my way to being a marine paleontologist more or less uh it's just it isn't sadly prehistoric whales or dolphins i'm actually studying marine worms i know that sounds quite close there's a lot of worms in the ocean there's not a lot of differences there yeah <laughs> not a lot of differences all right have you ever heard of a velvet worm okay so tell us a little so these are cambrian vel velvet worms they are um, worms, yeah. so so what are you trying to what what are you exploring with these yeah with these worms. All right, so velvet worms, or other hot worms being their scientific name, are a living variety of worms. Uh, it's that they've got legs. So they're worms with legs. Well, they're sort of legs. They're leg-like things. And these days, they're terrestrial, and they live exclusively on land in warm, tropical areas of quite a few of them around Australia. Uh, but they're pretty tiny and they tend to hang out in moist leaf litter, like in the floor of rainforests and so on. So they don't really know all that much about their modern form. But the fossil record shows that their overall body plan, you know, they're long and they're wiggly and they have um these little red things. This general shape has been around for about 500 million years. There are actually a lot of them around at the time. And other coffins 
uh, actually related quite closely to arthropods, all those cuddly insects and also crustacea. And because I'm a rainbowologist, so crustacea, no special mention. They're also related to tardigrades, which are those extremely cool microwave animals that have the ability to absorb, well, sort of absorb DNA. Anyway, those crazy indestructible things that you can shoot out into space and exactly. keep on going, aren't they? That's them, yeah. They're they an appearance in uh, Star Trek, even. So the <laughs> velvet worm of the Cambrian era was different. They were exclusively marine. All life that there was marine. And they also had, nearly all of them, these external growths around the body, which were all sclerites. They were hard, mineralized plates. And beyond that, we actually don't know very much about them. So what I'm doing in my studies is I'm actually applying a statistical method called geometric morphometrics to these fossils of one species of Cambrian velvet worm called Macrodictian silicon, and it's from China. And it's the only species of the genus Macrodictian to have the complete body, including those squishy legs, preserved. So I, I had, I'm doing my honors in this, so I'm postgraduate now. And yeah, what I'm trying to do, or have done, is investigate the variations you see in shape of those sclerites. That are typically the only fossil evidence we have of microdictian is the sclerites. Mm -hmm. And that means that. We actually don't really know anything about how they ate, how they grew, how they lived, if they moved around, if they were swimming around the water column or living on the seashore. Now, Morphometrics isn't able to tell us that, but what it is able to do is tell us if those sclerites change in overall shape consistently, and also I've used it to examine size for ontology. So let's talk about how it is they grew and developed. That's very cool. That's very cool. So we've, we've got a couple of minutes left. Um, uh, just just where where do you want to take this this paleontology journey? What 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 um, because because there, there are Ultimately, there are no limits when we smash through barriers and do things, are there? So, what's what's your what's your dream paleontological job? Ah, I dream paleontological job. Yes, that is interesting because obviously I work as a journalist, so and uh, employment I'm currently set. What I want to do with paleontology right now is I want to stay research active. So honours isn't the end. It was actually my first chance to do proper paleo. I did a couple of um, 
online research that you were there even though I was still an undergraduate marine science. But this is then my actual deep dive into the Cambrian Oceans and into paleontology. So I plan to do a PhD next. Uh, the aim is to skip over my master's and just go straight into a doctorate. And my objective is to stay research active. The reason I ended up choosing more metrics to do the statistics is it's something I can do on my laptop at home, but I can always do the units online. I do love field work, but it is a difficult undertaking, and so as much as possible, I like to work in the area of computer analysis of fossils, it is easier. And North Metrics is something that could be applied to a variety of paleo species. It usually gets used on dinosaurs, in fact, is usually for vertebrates with complex skeletons. Uh, using it on squishy worms with simple external car growth is not common. And so I had to do quite a lot of work in explaining why I was doing it in the first place. But that is something that I can keep using going forward. And also, right now, I feel like with microdiction, I've just sort of scratched the surface of their growth patterns. For example, I have found out that they didn't have any instars or larval stages. They just got bigger as they aged. Their ontology was isometric. That's a pretty good result. And I want to keep going and keep looking at this species, like EHD and other microdiction species, and keep trying to figure out how they developed and how they got to where they are now. And after that, I'm not sure, but I'm pretty sure that I'm going to be using more metrics for a lot of different paleo questions over time. Once I feel I'm satisfied with the answers for the heavier micro worlds. That is a brilliant note on which to um, get to the end of the recording of the podcast. Thank you so much. At some stage, Dr. Eleanor, I love the sound of that. <laughs> um, thank you for your time and sharing your story on Paleo Jam. It's time to spread some paleo jam.